All right, so our last little bit before we take a break here, we're going to look at the tribulation. Uh, there is a special resurrection that takes place during this time, similar to prior to Christ, the resurrection or the translation of Enoch and Elijah. We do have uh, we do have what are called the two witnesses that will be resurrected during the tribulation, right at the midpoint, and we'll look at that. But uh, this doctrine of the tribulation, where do we find it in Scripture? Uh, because again, that's the scope of most of the book of Revelation is the tribulation. So this here in Matthew 24, this comes from the Olivet Discourse, uh, Christ speaking to his disciples on the Mount Olivet uh, prior to his crucifixion. So his audience here is still a Jewish audience. Um, and they've, they've asked him the question, Lord, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And this is part of his answer. He says, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many because lawlessness is increased. Most people's love will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now, this, uh, this section of scripture is Christ explaining what happens during the tribulation, uh, that they will be delivered over to tribulation. And this is speaking to Israel, Israel who was in unfaithfulness when Christ returned. Uh, because also, again, the context of this verse, they're asking about Israel. They're asking about the temple. Um, and this is what Christ has to say about Israel, uh, that they will not escape this tribulation as a nation. But we have the promise from 2 Thessalonians, again, Christ speaking to the Thessalonian church, uh, that this day has not yet come for the church. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So what we understand happened here uh, in the second letter of Thessalonians is uh, someone was preaching to this Thessalonian in church that the resurrection had already happened, that the day of the Lord had already come. Um, and Paul is writing them to promise them that, no, it has not already happened. They have an understanding of how it will come to be, and those events have not yet taken place. Uh, so Paul is essentially telling them uh, that whoever comes to them, telling them something different than what Paul has um, told them is not telling them the truth. Remember, Paul is the steward of this uh, stewardship of grace. He is the one who God has given the revelation um, that is meant for the church as a direct message to them. Uh, so Paul has that ability to tell them, uh, you listen to me, not these other people coming and telling you uh, what God has to say. Uh, all right. Yeah. Everybody who watched people come out of the grave at Christ's death, mm -hmm. I can see them saying, oh, that must have been, or if, you know, that could have been 
this rapture or mm. this, mm-hmm. you know, this picking up. Okay, it's happened. It's done. Yeah, I can yeah, see that, that because it should have shaken people. <laughs> Hopefully, I mean, there were three thousand that uh, came to Christ on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached his first sermon. Um, so people's hearts were ready for this. Um, and uh, surely seeing some sign of the resurrection like that would have stirred their hearts um, to the power of God and to the promise uh, that we have. But in at that time, the New Testament hadn't been written, so they couldn't even read it. That's true. Yeah, but the Old Testament had been written at that point, and the concept of resurrection is present in the Old Testament as well. Um, so, I mean, Old Testament resurrection. Old Testament resurrection. And, uh, but not a testament, not what is described in the New Testament would have really not been, hadn't been written down nor read by anybody. Yeah, and a lot of that uh, distinction between the Old Testament resurrection and the New Testament resurrection may not have been beat out at this point. The Thessalonian letters were pretty early in the church age. It was some of uh, Paul's first. Um, so it may be that they didn't understand the difference um, between the resurrection schedule and where they fell on that schedule, they just knew that they were going to be escaping the wrath of Christ. Uh, so I see a, a message here from Naomi. She says, the agreement with peace in Israel is right at the start of the tribulation. No. Uh, does that mean the Antichrist comes after the rapture, but he is not around before, or that it's just not revealed who he is before? Uh, yeah, he's not revealed before the rapture. Uh, we won't know who the, the Antichrist is. We might get a pretty good idea. I follow this one guy on YouTube who's pretty sure it's Emmanuel Macron from the president of uh, France. And again, all I can say <laughs> that is uh, we're not going to know. And we're not supposed to be looking for the Antichrist. We're looking for Christ. Uh, we're awaiting his return and our translation in the rapture. Uh, so we, we don't really need to be at it. It might be exciting to look at the world and try to guess who it might be, but Satan always has a man in the wings because Satan doesn't know the plan of God. He only knows what God has revealed. Uh, so he himself does not know at what time the end comes. In fact, Christ says that Christ doesn't even know what time the end comes, only God the Father. Uh, he said he thinks it's Emmanuel Macron. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, <laughs> maybe. Um, but what I'm- side are you talking about? Uh, Emmanuel Macron, the president of France. And you know, I was in I I was in that election, and uh, it was, uh, it, 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 yeah, there was something nefarious going on um, when Le Pen lost. It was not expected by most of the French people. But um, the concept of uh, having a man in the wings, I mean, I'm pretty certain that uh, had it been the time that the Lord had prepared for the tribulation uh, back in the 40s, Satan had probably been grooming Hitler to become that Antichrist. But again, we can find a million Antichrists because Satan's always trying to prepare a man for the, uh, to be his man of the hour. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it's happening in God's timing. Uh, the end will come in God's timing, not in Satan. So Satan's going to be ready when it happens. Uh, but we can, we can only be guessing just as well as Satan can only be guessing. Uh, who that man will be and at what time that will come. So yeah, um, how I see end times eschatology unfolding is the rapture happens, and then the peace agreement of Daniel 9.27 is struck between Israel and the surrounding nations, and that uh, peace deal will be 
uh, ratified by the Antichrist. Um, that being said, the only clear indication of who the Antichrist is comes at the midpoint of the tribulation when he puts himself into the temple and declares himself to be God. Uh, until that happens, you can't be overly dogmatic, even during the tribulation of who the Antichrist is, at least not scripturally. Um, so the, the rapture would precede that peace agreement by how much time? I don't know. Uh, there's one uh, theologian, what's his name? Um, can't remember, he, he's another dispensationalist, but one who's a, a bit um, wild at times. He, he thought there would be a 30 year gap between uh, the rapture and the uh, signing of the covenant. And I have no idea how he gets that number. Uh, I wouldn't assume it would be a very long time, uh, perhaps a matter of hours, days, weeks, months, uh, but I, I would assume they happen in pretty close succession, uh, the rapture of the church and then the beginning of the tribulation, because the tribulation does not begin with the rapture of the church. The tribulation begins with a peace agreement um, struck with the Antichrist. Uh, all right, so while we're on a roll here, let's look at another controversy here. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4, uh, this word apostasy, uh, most people have a different interpretation of what that apostasy is. Uh, my interpretation of it is that it means a departure. Uh, so let's read that and I'll give you the reasons why I have come to understand it that way. So it says, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself to be God. Um, so again, at the end of this verse, where he says he takes, or he places himself in the seat of the temple and displays himself as being God, that's speaking about the midpoint of the tribulation, where the Antichrist will enter the newly built temple, the third temple in Jerusalem, and declare that he himself is God. And this has been Satan's uh, goal all throughout history. Uh, this was the lie that he told Adam and Eve in the garden that they could be as gods. Uh, in Ezekiel, we see that uh, Satan has sought the seat of the Almighty. Uh, we see in the book of Revelation that he is designing for himself a kingdom, just as God is preparing a kingdom. He has designed for himself an unholy trinity in the false prophet, the beast, and Satan himself. Uh, to reflect the Trinity, the Holy Trinity, God, the Father, God, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So uh, Satan does act in mimicry. And just as God sat himself in the temple on, in the Shekinah glory, on the Ark of the Covenant, so Satan will place himself in the midst of the temple and say that he is God. Uh, but the question, of course, is when will this happen? And Paul says, uh, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. Now, when we take this verse out of the context of the argument of 2 Thessalonians, uh, we're tempted to interpret this word apostasy, which is, comes from the Greek apostasia, um, in our English understanding of this word. Uh, but etymology is never a good way to translate and interpret, uh, because words change and take on various meanings. Uh, apostasia comes from two different words in the Greek, apo meaning 
uh, away from Anstasia, uh, which at the moment it's blanking my mind what that means. Uh, but I believe we get the word stasis or static um, in the English from that. Uh, so we have the idea of a falling away here, a taking away or departure of some sort. Uh, so again, usually this is taken as apostasy being the spiritual sense of apostasy where they fall away from truth. Uh, it doesn't fit the context of Thessalonians. Nowhere else uh, in Thessalonians has Paul been teaching that to the Thessalonian church. Um, in essence, it would be out of the blue if he mentioned it here. Uh, furthermore, apostasy is not unique to the end times. Apostasy is taught as being present throughout the entire church age. So the presence of the definite article here, the apostasy, tells us that this is something special and something unique um, that's going to happen prior to the revelation of the lawless one, the Antichrist. Uh, and my view of that is that apostasy here is not speaking of apostasy, but a departure, and specifically a departure of those to whom he's speaking, the church at Thessalonica. One proponent of this is Wayne House. He's actually from Tacoma. He went to, I think, Baptist Seminary in Tacoma. Uh, he's got this to say about apostasia. Uh, he says, to view apostasia as speaking of a departure agrees with examples of usage in the Greek world is consistent with the context of 2 Thessalonians 2 and fits with Paul's objective to provide comfort to believers. This interpretation of 2 Thessalonians 2.3 can also provide hope for Christians today, securing them in the knowledge that they are not destined for wrath, but to meet the Lord in the air and to always be with him. Furthermore, Tim LaHaye, probably a more famous name, he was the theologian behind the book written by, um, what's his name? Uh, the guy who wrote Left Behind series. He was essentially the, he, he came up with the idea for that book series. And he was the, one of the theological consultants for Jerry Jenkins, who wrote that book. Right. Say again. Was that Oh, not Freddy. Um, no, this was Jerry Jenkins who wrote Left Behind. Oh, right. uh, yeah, so Jerry Jenkins did the writing and the storyboarding, but uh, Tim LaHaye uh, was the primary consultant and the one who came up with the concept for that book series. But he wasn't a fiction writer, so they hired Jerry Jenkins to write those books. Um, but anyways, this is what Tim LaHaye has to say about um, this verse. And originally, Tim LaHaye did not have this understanding of uh, Second Thessalonians 2, 3. And it wasn't until after those books were completed that he even came to that understanding. Um, and he actually died a couple years ago, 2016. But he had to say uh, about this. I have come to the conclusion that the weight of evidence favors departing as the proper translation of apostasia in the original text, not apostasy or falling away or rebellion. Uh, now, again, this is a minority view, but it's a view that's picking up a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, proponents. Ischuler English, uh, he's a common uh, bookshelf name. A lot of people have books by English, uh, commentaries and so on. Stanley Ellison, 
uh, Gordon Lewis, Kenneth West. These are probably the most commonly known names. Uh, Andy Woods, uh, who is the president of Chafer Theological Seminary, he actually wrote a book on this topic uh, called A Falling Away. And uh, it focuses entirely on this verse, the entire book. Arnold Fruchtenbaum was actually convinced by Andy Wood's arguments uh, that that is what apostasia means. Uh, J.D. Farag, uh, Wayne House, we saw a quote from him, and Tim LaHaye, uh, as well as many others. I believe Robbie Dean also sees it this way. We saw a quote from him at the very beginning. Uh, so essentially everyone, uh, everyone in conservative circles who is looking at the evidence for this is coming away with the conclusion that the evidence is overwhelming. So another uh, question then is going to be about the restrainer. And this is just the subsequent verse Paul is writing after 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4, now 5 and 7. So he says, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So who is the one who is restraining and what is he restraining? Well, in the context of the verse, the object being restrained is the lawless one, the Antichrist. So what exactly is keeping the Antichrist? Again, Satan always has a man in the wings. What is keeping him from being revealed? And uh, I believe that the restrainer here is speaking of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're not told explicitly in Scripture uh, what this is. Some have postulated that it may be government that's keeping him at bay. This is not in keeping with scriptural uh, themes. Government is never looked at as a benevolent source, but rather a necessary evil. Uh, and we see that in... Uh, Genesis 9 through 11, especially in 11, where uh, really one of the primary enemies of God throughout the entire scripture is this city of Babylon. And uh, government is actually what we're working against, or what Christ is working against in the book of Revelation, especially at the last few chapters, uh, chapter 16 through 18, is all going to be um, against Babylon. Um, so Naomi asks, who is being restrained? Um, in the context of the verse, it would be the Antichrist. Uh, we've got that from, here's the previous verse, 2 Thessalonians 3 through 4. Uh, so it's the one who sits in the temple and declares himself that he is God. Uh, he is the one who would be restrained by this restrainer. Uh, and he's also called the mystery of lawless or the lawless one. But it says the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Um, so this brings to mind the concept that there are antichrists in the world, antichrist just meaning against Christ, uh, but there will be one who takes the other meaning of anti, uh, for antichrist, which is in place of, and that man will put himself in place of Christ in the temple. So, um, again, looking through the gospels, especially the gospel of Matthew, which focuses on the concept of the king, Jesus coming as the king where Israel rejected their king, um, where, where they rejected Christ and did not install him as king, they will accept this antichrist um, as their king, um, whether by force or by, um, or by will. 
so again, this lawless one continuing on in 2 Thessalonians 2 here. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one who is coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Um, so this is uh, a broad picture here of, or a, a small picture here of the tribulation uh, that is to come. So again, we were looking at the book of Revelation, which was the last book canonized, the last book added to the canon. Uh, and it, it gets ridiculed quite a bit for what's in it. But what is in it is consistent with scripture. And that is why it was canonized, because it did not teach any heresies. Um, the entirety, pretty much, of New Testament revelation, uh, I think only Philemon uh, in the New Testament does not mention this time of tribulation. And for Philemon, that would make perfect sense, because that's just a, a letter from Paul to a slave owner. Uh, there was no doctrine uh, of the church in this manner being taught in it of the church's destiny. But in all the other books, um, Actually, there may be one of the books of John. I think Third John doesn't mention it either. Uh, this is a common concept found throughout scripture, this uh, tribulation that will take place at the end of this age. And it is a special tribulation. But um, the reason this fits into our topic tonight is because during the tribulation, uh, there will be two men resurrected. Um, and this takes place as well at about the midpoint of the tribulation. Um, in Tim LaHaye's book, again, we don't get our theology from the Left Behind series, but I think he got this point right. Uh, the murder of these two witnesses um, in Jerusalem uh, took place at the midpoint of the tribulation at the same time that uh, the Antichrist went into the temple and declared himself to be God. Um, so th this does happen, I believe, around the midpoint, uh, three and a half years into the seven-year tribulation, uh, and this is the account of their resurrection after they are slaughtered by the, uh, by the Antichrist and left uh, for all to see for three and a half days um, in Jerusalem, and they'll, uh, they will celebrate the murder of these two witnesses. And it says, but after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. So even during the tribulation, there will be uh, signs of God's saving power as well. And uh, I think this will prove as a testimony to a lot of the undecided there at the midpoint of the tribulation, just prior to the great tribulation, which is referred to as the second half. Um, the, uh, the time of Jacob's trouble, it's also spoken of. Now, this happens right in the center of Jerusalem. Um, those watching will be mostly Jews. And uh, this, this happens just prior to the greatest tribulation that they will ever face. Um, so this is a tribulation in the last three and a half years of the tribulation um, that will uh, uh, put the Holocaust to shame. Uh, 
this will be a tribulation far worse than they've ever experienced before. And we all know the numbers that 6 million Jews were killed during the Holocaust. Um, currently in Israel, I think there are only 12 million Jews. Uh, after the after three and a half years of tribulation, there will probably be far fewer. Um, so this is going to be an incredible extinction exercise on the part of uh, the Antichrist. But it will be preceded by this resurrection. And those who see it will see the power of our God um, in juxtaposition with the blasphemy of the man that they've put over themselves to be God. All right. Does anybody need a break? Time for questions. Yeah, we can take some questions here. I know this is a, a long one, and if if people need to go, um, we we could end it here and pick back up. But uh, I'm I'm willing to keep going if if other people want to keep going. This is further than halfway. Uh, we're probably more than two thirds, even three quarters of the way through here. We've got a. So we're 45 of 65-ish slides. What was that? Kelly will stay. Kelly will stay. All right. I'll stay. I'll okay. stick with the two. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I keep extending this time. Eventually, this is going to be a six-hour class. But uh, uh, I, I know what it's like. Uh, my eschatology and ecclesiology professor, he has a monotone voice, and he'll go on and on and on and on. And uh, my eschatology class was three hours at four in the morning. And, oh and uh, I tell you, <laughs> I, I think I slept the most. It's the only class I've ever gotten a B in. And uh, not a good combination. <laughs> we got a question. Last week it was 9.30 when we finished. This is nothing. We got this. All right. This is what well, no, the, the questions are great because uh, uh, I, I mean, I, I like to know where you guys are at, what you understand, what you don't understand. Uh, you guys come up with some great questions that help me go and research and have a better understanding, too. So I think they're beneficial to everyone here. Okay, so I have two questions. <laughs> go for it. All right. So are you when when you talk about apostasia and departing are you saying you are in agreement or you're not convinced about rebellion not being the correct word but departing being the correct word are you saying you agree with tim lahaye and that you believe it's departing i'm not as convinced as they are um but i i think perhaps that's just because i'm not aware of the entire weight of the evidence um but uh, I, i'd say it, the first time i heard it i kind of just passed it passed it over and said, oh yeah, that's interesting. Um, I think people are looking for stuff. And to be quite honest, the first time I heard it, I heard it from J.D. Farag. And uh, he has a tendency to be hunting for rapture passages. Um, so he, it did not convince me and it, it made me skeptical hearing that he's a proponent of that view. Um, but then I did read Andy Wood's book on it and uh, listened to Wayne House and Tim LaHaye's arguments for it. They have chapters in a book called the the popular rapture handbook or the popular handbook on the rapture and uh they're both proponents of it in fact i didn't write it but uh, um david reagan from lamb lion ministries he's also a proponent of that 
those who uh, are in the same theological camp but disagree uh, tend to disagree, I think, because it's, uh, it's not as, uh, it doesn't fit their messaging. Uh, not that it doesn't fit the messaging of scripture. Uh, they really like that word being used in that text to mean apostasy because some of their main focus is uh, failure of the church uh, in the modern age. So they, they want to look at that as the apostasy of the church. Uh, but I think an honest look at the language and the, the thrust of the argument uh, in 2 Thessalonians, um, speaking of an apostasy just doesn't fit the context. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, it's not the best proof there is there, but uh, sometimes it's just the best proof we have to go on. Yeah. And I'm not convinced that it means apostasy. I'm not convinced that it means a falling away from the church. Um, I, I say the best way I can summarize my view on that is I'm not sure what it means, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't mean apostasy because it doesn't fit the context of Second Thessalonians. And the fact that there are multiple different translations of that word, um, it really becomes incumbent on the interpreter to understand what the original author intended by that meaning uh, or by that word. So there's, there's lots of... Uh, contemporary literature at that time where we can see how how were the Greek authors using this word uh, in their day and age? Were there any other textual variants uh, that uh, might help us better understand uh, how that word was used then? Because we're going from one language to another. And uh, though a lot of English is based on Greek, uh, meaning is surprisingly some of the first things to change uh, as languages progress. Uh, again, my background's in linguistics. So to me, it, it makes sense why that word uh, etymolo etymologically appears to be apostasy uh, because the sound of a language and the phonetics of a language are more hard and fast than meaning of a language and syntax and prosody of a language. Uh, those are some of the first things to change. So what probably happened uh, was a partial transfer of that word and its meaning into English, um, apostasy, where we took one use of the Greek uh, word that had a wider domain uh, of meaning, and we adopted only that one use of it in English. And of course, the danger of that is as English readers, when we look at the text, um, what meaning do we take? Um, what, what meaning is that word packed with in our culture that wasn't packed with in the Greek culture? Uh, being that we are one of the base languages that a lot of other translations will translate their scriptures off of, it's kind of hard to go to other languages. Like uh, I think I looked in the Korean Bible to see how they translated this word and they translated it as a spiritual falling away apostasy of the church. Um, but I don't know. Um, okay, but let's assume that apostasy is the correct interpretation, right. falling away of the church. When they say the following of the church, what does that actually mean? Whether it's rebellion, what? falling away or departing, what, what mm -hmm. really was the big difference? I think the global view right the overall view is really what we're supposed to be taking out of that 
whether you're using the word apostasy, falling away, uh, rebellion, mm-hmm. uh, departing, departing of the church. Well, and that's, that's the trouble in that it it's not fitting the context of Second Thessalonians, so we don't have anything to indicate what exactly that would mean. Uh, because the audience is a church, um, a lot of people have taken it to mean that it's an apostasy within the church, uh, that a lot of um, churches themselves would fall away from teaching the truth. Uh, so, and I think that's like, if, if you've ever heard a uh, lamb or not, Olive Tree Ministries of Jan Markell. Yep. Uh, and um, I think, what's his name? Jay, not, uh, Amir Sarfati. They, they teach that this is the apostasy of the church and that the end times church itself would fall away from tr- teaching true doctrine. Now, this is supported by other scripture but it's not supported by the argument of Second Thessalonians. Um, so it's not inconsistent to say that the church itself would fall away from teaching true doctrine. Uh, but I think it's almost a waste of that verse if we take it out of context and refuse to re-examine it. Um, so what's happening now is a re-examining of that verse. Uh, now that we've kind of got our ducks in a row looking at the rest of teaching of scripture, um, the, the intent that we have to come to this with is not to find verses to support our theologies, but to change our theologies based on uh, the intended meaning of scripture. So um, I, I'm interested to see what, uh, what non-proponents of this view come back with as a rebuttal um, for why they don't see it that way. I mean, we, we need evidence and reasons within the text um, to change our thinking. Uh, so I, I am waiting for them to write uh, or record some sort of rebuttal. Um, so I can see what other evidences are maybe not being uh, looked at by those um, who do hold to this uh, view. I mean, and again, myself, I, I could get in and do the research as well. Um, but it, it will be interesting to see and uh, it's worth looking into, I'd say. Because if it is a rapture verse, uh, it would, kind of seal the deal for pre-trib. Um, so it, it is one that I I want to be true, but that's again why I'm personally not adopting this view myself uh, because I don't want to jump on it because it fits my view. Um, I, I wanna make sure that the evidence is actually strong enough yeah. to support that. Okay, and my second question is, what was the website you were talking about for the Antichrist? You said you follow a couple of videos. Oh, <laughs> yeah. No, it's a YouTube channel. Uh, Watchman 88, I think is what his title is. He is, he's joined Jan Markell on her show a couple of times. His name's Chad. Uh, Chad Thomas. Chad Thomas, yeah. Yeah, and I, I like him. I watch him. I love his heart for the church and the people of God. Um, so I, I really do enjoy uh, watching his, but they can be a little fantastical at times. Uh, that being said, I'm I'm pretty much on board with him, and he he takes this view um, as well of the apostasia being the rapture. Cool, thanks. Yeah, no problem. But he he's not a theologian though. I he's he's an evangelist, I'd say. Uh, so he he doesn't get in and do the actual research himself. Uh, he he becomes convinced by. Uh, the theologians and the researchers and it, it really is a shared burden trying to understand uh, 
what scripture is saying. Um, unfortunately for us, 2000 years in a past in a different culture with a different language, it's not as easy for us to read and naturally glean from scripture. Uh, it, it's almost can be a hindrance to us that we have it in the English language, although I'd never say that that's a bad thing to have it in our language. Um, but we have a tendency to read it as if it was written in English. Uh, so we just want to be careful of that as we go through. And that, that's the job of theologians and people who are uh, able to take the time and, and resources to learn the original languages, and hopefully they do so honestly. And, and uh, I know my, my professor, Andy Woods, always says uh, one of the most dangerous things is a newly graduated seminary student with a Hebrew degree. Um, they can make just about anything mean just about anything, and no one else is going to argue except for uh, people a little more weathered in their use of Hebrew. So uh, sometimes the arguments can sound good, uh, but don't hold water. I think that's what he means.